This is Incredible Stories Podcast, Episode 55, Name That Food. Well, hello again, everyone. It's been a while, but it's time for another Incredible Stories podcast. I'm Josh Virla, your comestible host. And thanks for being here. Don't forget to give us a five-star rating on iTunes, and feel free to send me a haiku or show note at contact at IncredibleStoriesPodcast.com. And remember to share our show if you like it, and even if you don't like it, share it anyways. Maybe someone else will like it. I apologize, it's been a while since the last episode. What can I say? Sometimes you just feel lazy. But no worries. Today I'm serving up a hot plate of interesting for you. And when you think of hot plates, most of us think of food. But have you ever wondered about the origins behind some of the names of our favorite dishes? Why do we call them Eggs Benedict or Salisbury Steak? Well, you're in luck because today we will dive into the history behind these dishes and others in this tasty episode. Here's what I know. Ever since people could cook food and consistently make a dish, not just throw meat on the fire, naming a dish has been a way for a chef to honor someone of importance or highlight a significant event. Often, the real reason behind the names of famous dishes is clouded from the fog of history. But in some cases, we're lucky enough to pinpoint the exact origin of those dishes. Case in point for one of my favorite Italian foods, and I'm sure many of yours as well, let's start of course with the famous fettuccine alfredo. This decadent noodle dish, made mainly from cream, butter, and parmesan cheese, is generously incorporated into fettuccine pasta. The legend of its origin that some may be familiar with is as follows. In 1914, a restaurant owner in Rome, Italy named Alfredo Di Lillo was trying to bring some comfort to his pregnant wife, Inez, who had a bad case of nausea and was having trouble eating anything. So Alfredo whipped up a special dish which his wife was able to eat and loved. So Alfredo said, I shall add this to my restaurant's menu, which he did. Fast forward to 1920, when American actors Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford were visiting Italy and it happened upon Alfredo's restaurant, which was named Via Della Scrofa and they tried Alfredo's special pasta. Well, this pair asked for the recipe and Alfredo gave it to them and to show their love of the new pasta and Alfredo's hospitality, the pair gifted Alfredo with some golden silverware. And after their trip to Italy, the two brought the love of the dish back home to the States with them. The news of the delicious noodle dish spread and soon every Hollywood person visiting Italy had to stop at Alfredo's to sample the dish and as you can imagine the popularity grew and grew. Cool story, right? 
Well, only that this is somewhat mythified. The actual origin of Fettuccine Alfredo isn't really that Roman restaurant. Sorry guys. Although Alfredo did own that restaurant and did serve a delicious noodle dish to Fairbanks and Pickford, but the dish they ate was most likely something Alfredo created called, in Italy, Fettuccine al Triplo Burro, which is just butter and cheese and noodles. No cream. This isn't a pasta dish seen that often in Italy even. Outside of Alfredo's original restaurant, which he sold to his waiters, and a competitor restaurant owned by Alfredo's nephews now, this Triple O Burro dish is really just an extra buttery version of a dish that has been around for ages and is just known as El Burro, aka with butter. In fact, a fettuccine with butter and Parmesan cheese was first referenced in a cookbook dating back to the 15th century that was written by who many consider the first celebrity chef, Martino de Rossi. So there you have it. The fettuccine Alfredo in Italy isn't exactly like the fettuccine Alfredo we know in America. In Italy, it is little more than buttery cheese noodles. And the places where you can get the famous fettuccine Alfredo in Italy are largely popular by tourists looking for the original creators of this famous dish. Think of it kind of like Ray's Pizza in New York, or who has the best cheese steaks, Pat's or Gino's in Philadelphia. So how did American Fettuccine Alfredo get so popular? Well, this can probably be attributed to Alfredo De Lillo and his business partner who opened an Alfredo's restaurant near Rockefeller Center in New York in 1977, and an Epcot Center location that opened in 1982. Now, as these locations were, of course, cultural centers of America, and they adapted the Alfredo sauce, and soon the dish spread, and as it got more Americanized, aka making it better by adding more creaminess to the dish, and nowadays you can buy Alfredo sauce in a jar, but yuck. Let's move on to another course, shall we? How about a palate cleanser? Let's talk salad. You probably think I'm going to go with Caesar salad, but we all know that was named for Julius Caesar. That's too easy. How about a nice Cobb salad? A robust garden salad usually made from various salad greens like iceberg and romaine lettuce, but also includes tomato, bacon, hard-boiled eggs, chicken, avocado, Roquefort cheese, and a red wine vinaigrette. Not my favorite salad, I must say. I think it's a hot mess, honestly. But this salad has two claims on it, both from the same restaurant, the Brown Derby. The Brown Derby was a famous LA restaurant, and the story goes that Robert Cobb, the owner of the restaurant, was looking to feed one of his famous patrons one night. Around midnight in 1937, Sid Grumman, the guy who created the famed Chinese theater, was hungry and went to the Brown Derby. As it was late at night, there wasn't much left, so Cobb threw together a bunch of odds and ends to create the meal salad. It became a hit and was a signature dish of the restaurant. Now, the conflicting claim was that it was actually the Brown Derby chef Paul J. Posty who came up with the dish or that the executive chef Robert Crace invented it in 1929 when the Derby first opened. 
Still, others say the dish existed before the restaurant opened and Cobb was making the salad for himself and some of his famous friends. No matter the exact originator though, we know it came from the Brown Derby restaurant and named for the owner, Robert Cobb. Thank God his name wasn't Butts. Can I interest you in some Kung Pao chicken? I bet you just assumed it was named after some Chinese province or person named Kung Pao, right? Well, listeners, this tasty, spicy, stir-fried chicken dish made with peanuts, veggies, and chili peppers is actually named for a bureaucratic title. This dish is believed to be named for a guy named Ning Baozhen. You'd think it would be Din Bao Chicken or something, but actually it is named for his official title of Gong Bao, which means Palace Guardian. So the story goes that early in the 1800s, Ding, as a boy, fell into some water and almost drowned. And if it wasn't for some random guy who happened to be walking by, he would have. When Ding got older, he became a high-ranking government official, and he decided to visit the family of the man who had saved his life. You know, to say thanks for saving me and allowing me to become a prominent figure in the community. So upon his visit, he was served a dish with chicken, peanuts, and Szechuan peppercorns. Well, he fell in love with this dish and began eating it all the time. And as he was an influential member of society, people quickly began to eat what he ate and began calling the dish Gung Bao Jading, you know, because he was the one that was eating it all the time. Now, interestingly, Kung Pao chicken is known in China, but it is a little different than what you get in America. As you know, American Chinese food is vastly different from authentic Chinese food. But the reason for the discrepancy here has something more to do with laws than it does with just Americanizing the dish. You see, in 1968, the United States had a ban on importing Szechuan pepper, which was thought to carry some sort of citrus fungus that would harm our citrus crops. Now, in 1972, Nixon became the first American head of state to visit China since it became what we know as China today. And this kicked off a craze in America to try authentic Chinese cuisines. And one of the dishes popular in China was Kung Pao chicken. However, because of the Szechuan peppercorn ban, chefs had to improvise and used sweet bell peppers in their place, which is totally different. Not surprisingly, this flavor profile is off from the original Chinese version of Kung Pao that used the Szechuan peppercorns. And interesting side note, these peppercorns aren't related to black peppers or peppers at all. They are actually closer related to citrus, which is why they were banned because they carried that fungus. But that ban was lifted in 2005. However, the American profile of Kung Pao is here to stay as that's what everyone knows. Hey, ever try Salisbury steak? Ah, yes. I remember the dreaded Salisbury steak lunch days from elementary school. Nothing like a loose oval of meat slathered in gravy. Yum. You might also recognize the dish from the many frozen food companies that sell it as well. Now, for some reason, I always associated this dish with being named after a town in England. But as it turns out, it is actually named after its inventor, Dr. James Salisbury. 
Now, the good doctor was a big health proponent and attributed ailments to your diet. During the Civil War, he often prescribed his muscle pulp of beef, aka chopped up meat, to Union soldiers to treat their diarrhea. Well, after experimenting with his culinary ideas, he published his theories about 30 years later in his book, The Relation of Alimentation and Disease, in 1892. So, I guess his theory was that being healthy meant eating foods that were easier to digest and absorb, hence chopped up meat. I guess you didn't have to work so hard to digest it, maybe? He pushed meat, specifically minced up meat, as a health food, as opposed to fruits and veggies, that would lead to the discreetly named summer complaints, which is just summertime diarrhea usually found in children. This was a thing because of foodborne illnesses increased during the summertime, and kids are filthy, so they got sick more. Anyway, his solution to poor health was his proto-Atkins diet, and his book helped kick off the first real health food fad craze, featuring his famous Salisbury steak, which was seasoned with onions and deep-fried or boiled, as introduced largely by him in 1888 and he suggested his steak should be eaten three times a day. Yay, meat! Okay, let's move on. Tired of meat? How about some eggs? Now, when I say eggs Benedict, who comes to mind? Maybe Benedict Arnold? Pope Benedict Thirteenth, Or Benedict Cucumber Patch? Well, none of these guys are responsible for the classy and elegant dish made from poached eggs sitting on ham perched on an English muffin, then bathed in hollandaise sauce. This dish also has several claimants to the origins, and two of them being the famous New York restaurant's The Delmonico, which is also known for the Delmonico steak, but I won't talk about that today, and the Waldorf Astoria, which is also known for the Waldorf salad, which I also won't talk about today. But now you know those two dishes are named for these restaurants. Now, Delmonico's claim goes like this. In the 1860s, one of the restaurant's regulars, Miss Legrand Benedict, wasn't finding anything to her high-class taste and asked the chef to create something more enjoyable for her lunch. So the chef, Chef Charles Ranhofer, talked it out with Miss Benedict and came up with something he called Eggs La Benedict, featuring English muffins toasted topped with an eighth of an inch of ham the same size as the muffins in roundness. This was then heated and topped with a poached egg and covered with hollandaise sauce. This recipe, though, wasn't published until 1894 in Ranhofer's cookbook called The Epicurean. Okay, seems like a solid claim. But this next claim seems like something that would have happened and led to the creation of a dish like this. So, the Waldorf Hotel's claim is that in 1894, a hungover Wall Street broker named Lemuel Benedict came in and wanted something for his hangover. He requested buttered toast with bacon, then two poached eggs, and a splashing of hollandaise sauce. Head chef Oscar Tajerki liked the cut of the mule's food jib and decided to put this item on the menu. But he wanted to refine it slightly by swapping out the bacon for Canadian bacon, aka ham, and change the toast to English muffins. 
Now, this story was accounted in 1942 in an issue of the New Yorker's magazine's column called Talk of the Town. Now, still a third claimant was laid down by Fannie Merritt Farmer in 1896 when she published a cookbook called The Boston Cooking School Cookbook. Now, Fannie was an interesting person. She could have her own episode into herself. But she was the woman who essentially standardized American cooking by introducing the concept of standardized measuring spoons and cups, etc. Before her cookbook, things were a bit more willy-nilly, like calling for a cup of something would mean whatever cup you had laying around, which, as you can imagine, would lead to many variations. Or another example of measurements would be something like, put a piece of butter the size of an egg in this dish. She was a culinary giant for sure, and her recipe called Eggs La Benedict was similar enough to what the Waldorf and Delmonico claimed. However, because of her later published date, it is most probable she got the recipe after it had been around a little while longer. So, who can claim to be the real inventor of Eggs Benedict? I lean toward the Waldorf's version myself, but honestly, it's hard to say for sure. Just enjoy the dish, people. And now you know what I know. Well, if you weren't hungry before this episode, I'm sure you're hungry now, and I can't blame you because I could sure go for some tasty vittles right now myself. To be sure, there are many, many more dishes out there that have origins you probably haven't heard of, and I might revisit this topic in a part two at some time. But until then, let's enjoy a heaping helping of haikus. A Hawaiian dish, the one with the black-eyed peas? Oh, that's Will I Spam. And that's all the time this week, guys. Check out our main site, IncredibleStoriesPodcast.com, for other incredible stories. Send me an email or haiku at contact at IncredibleStoriesPodcast.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at IncredPod. Rate us on iTunes and peep us out on YouTube and Stitcher. For Incredible Stories Podcast, I'm Josh, and remember, the journey of a thousand tales begins with the first word.